Good morning. So how many of you are using this? It's the book of Ruth with uh, page notes. Because it's time to switch out and go into Esther next. So if you want to go ahead and order these. Also, anybody that doesn't have one can have this. If you hold up your hand, I'll give it to you. Okay, Debbie. Uh, um, somebody bring it back to you, Debbie. Thanks, Bob. So the book of Esther's next. So next week, Hanson will be preaching from Hebrews. Where are you, Hanson? Hebrews chapter 3? Okay. And the following week, we'll finish up Ruth chapter 4. And the week after that, we'll be jumping into Esther. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time that we have to gather in the name of Jesus to come before your throne and to express our appreciation, our love, our gratitude and our devotion to you, and also to express our love to one another and to fellowship with each other in the name of your son, Jesus. And now we turn our hearts to hearing your word to us as we have given our voices to you now, bring your voice to our hearts and minds through the proclamation of the word. Give us listening ears and help us to read the word for what it truly says and not what we place into it. Uh, speak to us now, and your sons and your daughters will listen. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a movie that came out in 1971, Fiddler on the Roof. Everybody knows about that. It was also a, a play that came out. So basically, um, there's this poor milkman. He lives, ironically, in Ukraine, and he has this challenge of trying to marry off his five daughters amidst all the tension that's going on in, in the town that he lives in. So... Tevia and Golda, his wife, decide that they're going to solicit the, the work of the matchmaker who gets everybody together. Yente is the matchmaker, and uh, she, there's the song, remember, matchmaker, matchmaker, makes me a match. Okay, so the, the daughters are, uh, are c considering what it means to have the matchmaker give them a husband, and they start off thinking in the song, they start off thinking, this is a really cool idea, you know, and they're all kind of starry-eyed about the husband and the life they're going to have. Then the oldest daughter points out the fact that, you know, we come from a rather poor family, and, and we're not going to have first pick of the litter. We're going to have to marry whomever Yente, the matchmaker, gives to us. And as they start thinking about that, they're starting to think, maybe that's not such a good deal. Maybe they'd be better off not having the matchmaker. And so they get to the end, and they think maybe they'd be better off doing it themselves. Of course, matchmaking is the art or science or voodoo, I don't know of which, of trying to match two people because of similar character or, or DNA or whatever. It's actually, there's a resurgence of matchmaking going on right now, um, partly because people are unhappy with dating apps and partly because of of the COVID making people hard to, to connect with one another, and partly because they're disappointed with stupid TV shows like Million Dollar Matchmaker and Indian Matchmaker, that they're soliciting professional matchmakers to help them find the right one. You know, like when you hire a headhunter for a job, you know, you're paying them this premium amount of money to find just the right guy for the job. A matchmaker service costs somewhere between $1,000 and $100,000 to, to find the right match. Now, in the book of Ruth, where we're at today, 
Naomi decides she's going to be like Yente, the good Jewish matchmaker for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Matchmakers believe that matches are made in heaven, but they think that sometimes heaven needs a helping hand. And I think, too, we realize, <clears throat> excuse me, we realize that God is working all things together for our good, but sometimes we think that heaven needs a helping hand to achieve the good that we want to realize. Um, we've heard the story about Abraham, who was Abram at the time, and God tells him that he's going to father uh, many children. They're going to inherit the land that Abram now lives in. And as time goes on, nothing happens. Sarah, his wife, is getting old, and she realizes she's now too old to have children of her own. And so she decides to give God a helping hand. She brings to her husband, Abram, her uh, servant, Hagar, with the idea that she's going to give heaven a helping hand and God will provide Abram a, a child through Hagar. Of course, God doesn't need her helping hand, and her helping hand is actually getting in the way. Hagar has a child, but it is not the child of promise. Um, sometimes when we think God needs a helping hand, the truth is, you need a helping hand, and, and heaven does not. So the, the passage we're looking at today in the book of Ruth, um, God is sovereignly acting behind the scenes. By the way, that is the theme of the entire book. God is sovereignly acting behind the theme. And God is about to do something great, but Naomi thinks that God needs a little help. So take your Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 3. Remember, you can split your Bible open in the middle and go to the left, split that in the middle, and a little bit further to the left, you'll come to Ruth. It's hard to find. Joshua judges Ruth. And if you get to anything that starts with a one or a two, you've gone too far. So it's between the ones and the twos and judges. This is where you'll find Ruth. Now, in the first chapter of Ruth, we're introduced to Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and to her two boys, Malon and Kilion, um, there's a famine in the land of Judah, and so Elimelech decides to take his family away from Israel to the land of Moab. No sooner are they in Moab than Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Her sons, predictably, marry outside of the faith. They marry outside of the race. They marry Moabitists, um, who are strictly forbidden to be part of the Jewish group. And so their two sons marry Orpah and Ruth. And you remember Orpah uh, returns to the land of her people, and ultimately she returns to her own gods. But Ruth makes this wonderful pronouncement when she says, Entreat me not to leave you or forsake you. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and most importantly, your God will be my God. And then she invokes the covenant name and the covenant recipe of receiving Yahweh as her God. We get back to chapter 2, and there, they, it begins that they've arrived in Bethlehem. Um, Naomi and Ruth have returned, but they are impoverished widows at this time. I just remembered I don't have a microphone from you. I don't need one, right? Okay. They're impoverished widows at this time, and it's hard for impoverished widows to make a living. They do one of the only things that they can do. They start gleaning. They start working around the edges of the grain field and picking up the stuff that the harvesters have left behind. And they might be able to 
eke out an existence. They're not going to prosper doing this. Most of the time, you can only glean a day's worth of food, maybe two or three days if you're really good at it. So it's not, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme in any imagination. Um, that, but it's, uh, it's, it's what they can do. And Naomi has uttered a prayer for Ruth back in chapter 1 that, that Ruth would find herself a husband. She realizes there's little or no chance that that's going to happen because no Jew is going to marry a Moabite widow. And uh, she, Naomi is, is wondering how God's going to take care of Ruth. And it just so happens that uh, they arrive at the beginning of the barley harvest. It just so happens that Ruth sets out to glean in a field that belongs to Boaz. It just so happens that Boaz shows up just at that time. As far as we know, this is the only time Boaz has shown up at the harvest time. It just so happens that Boaz takes an interest in Ruth. It just so happens Boaz extends protection and provision to Ruth. And Naomi is watching all of this. And she sees all of these just so happen events. And, and the wheels start to turn in her, her mind. Perhaps God is providing for them. Perhaps God is answering her prayer. And she's thinking, as a good Jewish mother would, Oi, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps God is going to provide for Ruth a husband. So that's what Naomi is working around in, in her brain. Now, how could this be taking place? Now we get to chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you? Now, when she says seek rest for you, she means rest in the context of a marriage and a home. That's what she wants for roots. She's thinking about the security and the provision that being married provides. Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So a little background information. It's been three months of this barley harvest. So day after day now for three months, business goes on as usual. Ruth goes out, she gleans grain, she brings a day or so's worth of grain back. And um, th things go on, um, life goes on, oh blah dee, oh blah da. And day by day, life goes on and nothing seems to happen. And so now, would we would be wondering at this point, the whole story of Ruth is about this developing romance and what's developing, because it looks like nothing's happening over the last three months. Now, if we're thinking that, you know Naomi's thinking that too. You know, How is this provision of God going to be played out? She's wondering, you know, is, is God going to provide Ruth with a husband and myself with a redeemer, someone who will restore the fortunes and the name of my family. And again, the, the whole message of the book of Ruth is that God is working behind the scenes. He's working continuously in the lives of, the pe of his people. Even today, even when you think nothing is going on in your life, God is at work, and he's orchestrating the events. He's working this 
Beautiful tapestry, thank you, Michael. He's working this beautiful tapestry into our lives. Sometimes we're only seeing the back of the tapestry. We don't see the beauty that God is weaving. Sometimes it looks like God's dropped out of the picture altogether. But God has not forgotten us in our daily routine. When we see all the pressures and the, and the hassles and the uncertainties, the book of Ruth is calling us to trust in God anyway. Now, we need some careful explanation about what's taking place here in this third chapter of Ruth because it is a very strange thing which is going on. It's very uh, difficult to understand, especially from our modern Western um, perspective. It might seem at first sight that this archetypal Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, is pushing Ruth forwards with some plans which seem uh, somewhat forward, uh, immodest, you know, is, is Naomi suggesting that Ruth should run in and throw herself at, at Boaz? See, we need to learn something about that. Maybe there's something going on here that we don't understand about how ancient cultures arranged marriages. I mean, maybe that's what's going on here. We need a little bit of vital background um, and into the laws and practices and customs that were taking place in ancient Israel that, that will govern this story. And the first has to do with the concept of the kinsman redeemer. We introduced that subject when Naomi discovers Boaz was the one who took an interest in Ruth, and she goes, aha, he is one of our kinsman redeemers. I gave you a little bit of background about what a kinsman redeemer was. If you got poor and you couldn't afford to live, you might have to sell your property for the income, or you might have to sell yourself into slavery to pay your debts. In a case like that, it was the duty of a close relative who could buy you out to do so, so that the, if, you, if your property was mortgaged, the kinsman redeemer would buy it so that it wouldn't leave the clan. You might not own it anymore, but it wouldn't be lost to the clan. Or if you became a slave, it was the kinsman's redeemer's responsibility to pay for your debt so that you didn't belong to somebody else. It was a, it was a duty that they performed, um, but it was not necessarily an obligation that they had to do. It was up to them whether they wanted to or not. But the kinsman redeemer could buy back the property that a close relative had lost. Now, that's the first provision that Naomi is thinking about when she's, when she's thinking about um, her predicament. Now, next two weeks from now, when we get to chapter 4, verse 9, we're going to discover that Naomi owns property in Bethlehem, and she's decided to sell it because of her poverty. So Naomi still has property through her husband, Elimelech. She has an interest that Elimelech's name and property stay in the family but she also needs some capital to, to, live, to live on. So she's thinking first and foremost, Boaz, who was well-known in the community and seems to be rather well-off, Boaz could be such a guy who could buy us out. He could be our kinsman redeemer. Of course, I also mentioned, in addition to the financial obligation, the kinsman redeemer was also the guy that if somebody in the family got murdered, the kinsman redeemer was responsible to... to chase him down and murder him back. So you got, got some benefit from being a <laughs> redeemer. All right, at any rate, the other 
provision other than the kinsman redeemer that's, uh, that's important to us here is the Levitical provision of the Leverite, lever, Leverite law. It doesn't come from the word Leviticus. It comes from the Latin word Lever, L-E-V-I-R, the Leverate marriage. Now, the, the Latin word lever means brother-in-law. So in this tradition, this Levitical biblical custom was if, if a man died and he had no heir, it was his brother's job to father a child with his wife so that his name, his posterity, would continue. His name would not be lost. His property would not be lost. And uh, he would raise up this child not for, for his own name, but for the sake of his dead brother's name. This, by the way, remember when the Sadducees confront Jesus in uh, uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 18 through 27, they, they approached Jesus with that very famous saying, you know, there was a brother who died. It was a man who died. He left a wife. She had no children. And so his brother married her. And seven brothers all married her in succession. They each died, and none of them had a son. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? See, they're thinking this is a, this is a, a logical inconsistency. She can't be everybody's wife. And they're like, aha, we've got you on this one. Remember that saying? It's based, that whole attack was based on this Leverite law. It's called the brother-in-law law, that, um, that a man would raise up a child for his dead brother's sake. So that's the other thing Naomi is thinking about here, because she wants her husband's name, Elimelech, and his rightful heir, Malon, who's Ruth's former husband, she wants their name to continue, and she wants their property to continue in the family line, and she wants their family to be restored to their position in, in the Bethlehem community. So that's, that's Naomi's objective here. So she thinks not only will Boaz suit their need as the kinsman redeemer, but also to marry Ruth at, for this uh, Leverite uh, marriage. That's, that's what she's going on. Now, once again, the, the Leverite marriage was not a duty. It was a right. So you could, if, they, if someone said your, your brother died leaving no children, you should raise uh, children for him, he could say no. He didn't have to. I mean, there was a certain amount of cultural expectation that if you did that, there'd be a little bit of familial disappointment, I guess, but it was not a demand. You could say no. You had that right to, to say, I, I don't want to. I don't want to raise somebody else's kids. Um, but Naomi's hoping that uh, Boaz will be the guy to ransom their property and raise a son for their name. The problem is she doesn't know how that's going to happen. She's not really sure whether that will happen, and she feels like she needs to give God a little helping hand. Again, she needed to affirm that God is providentially in control at all times. It's, it's, not, easy, it's not difficult to follow her line of thinking. She, her line of thinking is basically, I went away full, I came back empty. Remember that at the end of chapter 1? I came back with nothing, and now God has surprised me by providing these possible opportunities. And what she's doing is she's looking and she's seeing maybe signposts that God has set up for her. Now, she's on the hunt. She wants to follow the signposts 
to see what God is doing and maybe give God a little nudge in the right direction. So she's following these signposts, these special marks of, of God's compassion and favor. She sees Boaz and she's thinking, there's the answer to my prayer. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been asking God for. So perhaps Boaz is the answer to my dilemma. Um, so she's going to test out the doors. I mean, that's one of the ways that God leads us. You push on a door. If the door is locked, you go and push on another door. If the door is open, you walk through it. And that's, that's kind of what she's doing here. She's pushing on the doors and seeing which ones move. But she's moving forward cautiously. Now, the thing that's really important for us to remember as we go through this is Naomi has begun doing some scheming. But God can work totally apart from her assistance. God's not doing it because Naomi is scheming. You know, God, God can act ap totally apart from her help. But here's Naomi's scheme. She, she's scheming how she can get uh, Ruth and Boaz hooked up. She's scheming how she can use Boaz to be the solution to her problem. Let me think about it. The things that have happened already happened without her scheming. She didn't scheme that her husband would leave Judah and, and go to Moab. She didn't scheme that her sons would marry Moabite girls. She didn't scheme that she would show up in Bethlehem at just the beginning of the barley harvest. She didn't scheme that Boaz would show up on the first day of, that she's working there. She didn't scheme that Boaz would show any interest in her, that Boaz would, Boaz would extend any protection or, or provision for her. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't scheme, scheme any of that. God is at work doing that. God's not benefited by her schemes. She could make such a, a proposal, but she doesn't realize that, that God doesn't need her help. And I think that's important for us to realize because we need to stop the, the propensity that we have of pushing the scheme button anytime that we're trying to manipulate God to act in our behalf, where we tell God, this is what I want, and this is how you're going to do it. And if God doesn't do it the way we demand, we get all disappointed with him. God doesn't need our scheming. He doesn't need our manipulating. And here's another thing. When you need to make a decision, and you're asking God to help you with that decision, you need to... Give God room to answer. and you need, you need to give God room to say no. You need to leave space in your decision for the miraculous, the, the unpredictable. You need to leave God the, the, the right to act in goodness or to deprive you of the thing that you think you need because he's God and he knows what's best for you. We want, we want God to, to break in and solve our problems and we'll tell him how to do it. No, that doesn't, I'm not saying that in your lack of scheming that you, you don't use wise counsel or, 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 or prayer or that you're not taking faithful steps to discern God's direction. But the point I'm trying to make is God wants our trust. He doesn't need our help. Naomi has a three-part plan, and it is just as earthly and manipulative as it sounds. Um, she knows already that Boaz is an honorable man, so let's start with, start with what she knows. She knows that Boaz is a man of integrity. But she comes up with this plan, which begins with step one. First, 
objectify Ruth. Is that the right word? You know, dress up and look nice so that you can appeal to the man. Does objectify the word I want to use? I think so. Any rate, her second plan is just to tell Ruth to be sneaky. She knows, she knows Ruth has no business at the threshing floor. That's men's work. And it could look as if she's prostituting herself. I mean that in literal sense here, by going to the threshing floor here. But she tells Ruth, Go, don't get noticed. Don't let anybody notice you. Be sneaky. Go to the threshing floor. Don't let anybody, even Boaz, uh, know, that, know of your presence there. And the third thing she tells Ruth is to do is, when you do get noticed by Boaz, you need to make some advances to him. Well, that's kind of scandalous. I don't know any culture where dressing up and putting on perfume and sneaking in at night and laying down next to someone would not appear to be scandalous. <laughs> I've heard some people say, and I actually read it a lot this past week, oh, but you don't understand, this is the cultural way that a woman proposed to a man. She'd lay down and cover herself up with his blanket. No, it's not. There's, that is not a custom of ancient Israel, to, to sneak in and to lay under the blanket. But let's look at the text here and not interject the words that we wanted to say. And there's no cultural... However strange it might sound, there is absolutely no cultural thing about laying down next to the man and wrapping a blanket around and, and calling that a marriage proposal. Um, on the other hand, I've also heard people say that this act of uncovering the feet doesn't stop with uncovering the feet. It meant to be uncovered the whole lower extremities, and so this is a, this is a, a sexual... Uh, invitation. It's not. Let's not read into the text what it doesn't say. It says she told her to uncover the feet. Let's not read anything more into that. At any rate, uh, Ruth uh, agrees to everything that Naomi, Naomi plans for her because she thinks Naomi has her best interest in mind, so it makes sense for her to follow. After all, it's Naomi's culture and her people, not her own. And she agrees to, to the plan. It's a, it's a clever plan, and it's a, it's a very bold move. Um, but given what we already know about Boaz and Ruth's character, and what we're going to find out where they each praise each other for being people of integrity and God-fearingness and, uh, and people of, of character, um, this uncovering of Boaz's feet is just that. You know, he's, she's going to uncover his feet, and his feet are going to get cold. And he's going to wake up in the middle of the night. You know how I know that? My wife does that. And it is not a, it is not a marriage proposal. It is an attempt to murder her husband. We, we have to wrestle for the duvet. So, no marriage proposal involved there. You wake up because your feet are cold. But at any rate... There's a, there's a balance here between restraint and audacity that we're going to unfold. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. In the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning and arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let not Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Okay, here's what's happening. She follows Naomi's plan. She goes in. She doesn't let anybody see her. It's dark. Have you ever been out in the in the dark when it's really dark? You know, I I used my mom built a house right next door to me, and we would we'd have dinner at her house, and I would only I'm only walking from her house to mine, but I could not see my feet. It's so dark. And the only reason I knew I was on the right place is that I could hear the pavement under my feet. If it got to grass, I was not on the road anymore. It was dark when Naomi goes to the threshing floor. And she goes to where Boaz lays down, and she lays down at his feet. And what else does she do, does the text say? She doesn't do anything. She lays down at his feet, and she does nothing more. She doesn't uncover more than his feet. She doesn't lift up the blanket and slip in under him. She doesn't snuggle up next to him. She doesn't cover herself with the blanket. She uncovers his feet so that he will wake up and then she can have this conversation with him. She's she's not manipulating Boaz with some inappropriate sexual gesture. She's just waiting for him to wake up, and he does. You know why he wakes up? Because his feet are cold. (laughs) And when he wakes up, he's surprised that there's somebody there. And where is she? She's not snuggling him. Where is she? She's at his feet, which are not covered (laughs) at this moment. Again, she is a noble woman, and he is a noble man, and they're... Fear is only the fear of the Lord God of Israel. And so what does Boaz do? He doesn't know who that is. You know why? Because it was dark. And so what does Boaz say? Who's there? Who is that? How else is he going to know? He asks. And she says, "It's, it's me, your servant. She doesn't place herself on an equal. She realizes that he is Lord He's the landowner. He's the superior in this case. And she presents herself as a servant. Now, here's the key to what's going on here. She appeals to Boaz with the same language that Boaz brought up. uh, What verse was it? Uh, 2.12, maybe. Anyway, where Boaz says he blesses, um, he blesses Ruth and he says, the Lord repay you for what you've done. Uh, full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. Under whose wings you have now come. That's the clue right there. 
Blessed are you, Ruth. You're a Moabitess. You're not part of the covenant community. You have come to Israel to be under the wings of Yahweh. What Ruth is saying right here, right now is, remember that? You are the Lord's answer. It is your wings, your coverage, which God is providing for me. That's what she's saying here. It has nothing to do with the cover. She's not asking to be covered up by the blanket. She's asking for a whole lot more. You are the covering that Yahweh has provided. And so she appeals to Boaz, and Boaz then pronounces a, a blessing on Ruth um, for being so compassionate that in the process of fulfilling this covenant need, she could have just as easily married a young man who had great prospects and he was great looking. Boaz is not a young man. He's an older man. He appeals to her as daughter. And here he says, you could have run after the young men, but you didn't do that. You have done something to fulfill the covenant promises. You, you didn't run after the young men to provide for your needs. You, your desire is not for yourself alone. And he gives his word then. He says, I will cover you. I will spread my wings over you. Here's this covenant promise. I will be that covering for you. He will act as the kinsman redeemer. He will act as the Leverite marriage. He says, but there is one problem. And that is, there's a redeemer, kinsman redeemer, who's got first dibs. He is first right of refusal. So I'll, I'll make that known to him. If he redeems you, fine. Either way, you get redeemed. If he doesn't redeem you, I pledge. Here's a covenant pledge. I pledge. As God is my witness, I will redeem you. Naomi wanted a husband for Ruth. Ruth wants a child for Naomi. Ruth wants someone who will father a child under Elimelech's and Malon's name and restore her family to a place of honor in the community. So Ruth, you see, is not marrying for love or money. But in the process of fulfilling this covenant of family, and then God blesses her with all of the above. Ruth knew her, her future doesn't ultimately rest on her ability or even Naomi's ability to formulate some cunning, extravagant scheme. It depended on God moving in Boaz's heart. And here, Boaz is really impressed with Ruth, and he says, I will be the redeemer. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will, uh, I forgot the verse already, I, I will spread my wings over you, is what he's, what he's saying. Uh, verse 15. <laughs> then he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. 
Uh, then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her that all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replies, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Again, this chapter ends like the last chapter did with Ruth going back to Naomi, and uh, she returns now with even a stronger promise than she has had in the past. Uh, something very significant has happened here where Boaz has given his word. He has given his promise, verse 13, I will redeem you. They're not idle words. This is a, a solemnly sworn commitment. Uh, this is a promise that, that, that Boaz is making. Of course, promises are only good as the person who's making them, and they sometimes depend on the character of the person giving them or the conditions. This carpet's coming up again. But, you know, Boaz, Boaz has proved himself to be a worthy manner, man. He's, he's, he's got considerable resources at his disposal. Um, from everything we've seen from chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've seen that he's a man of, of good character. Here's a man whose word can be relied on. He's made a promise, and Boaz is good for his word. But he doesn't just end it by making a pledge. Because he adds to his pledge, his promise, a covenant sign. Much like when we get engaged to a woman, we hand her a, a ring, an engagement ring. It is a pledge, a covenant sign, that what is promised will be fulfilled. That's when we, when we get engaged, right? Follow me on that. So what Boaz does here is he gives Ruth a really interesting sign gift, a pledge that he's going to complete what he's done. He says, bring your garment here. The garment that he's talking about is this, this shawl that uh, women would wear. And women in those days would use this shawl to carry a, an infant uh, around with them when they were working. And so Boaz says, bring me this shawl. And he fills it up with six measures of barley. We have, I don't have any idea how, many, how much is a measure here. But what he is doing is he's saying, I am filling this shawl with a promise. In this case, it's grain. But the promise is, one day, you will wear this shawl with a baby. There will be the fulfillment of the covenant promise. So she goes home with this shawl of barley today. But the promise is, one day, in the same way, you will be carrying a child. The Boaz signals his intention to do more than feed Ruth and Naomi. He's, uh, he's taking steps to ensure that he will provide for Elimelech and Malon and Naomi a son who will inherit Elimelech's name and property. Uh, this, this revelation that we have here towards the end that there is a, 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 another kinsman who's got first dibs it adds a certain level of suspense, but we know either way, they know either way, they're, they've got it made. Because it's, it's either this unknown redeemer or Boaz. Somebody has already made a promise now that one way or the other, they will be redeemed. And if the other guy doesn't want to do it, 
we know that Boaz says, if he doesn't, then, then I certainly will. Boaz is a really impressive man, uh, a really great man. So great that I might add, it could be coincidence, I think not, but Boaz's great, great grandson is King Solomon who builds the temple of the Lord. In the temple, there are two pillars. One of the names of the two pillars is Boaz. And I think he was a really great man. Anyway, again, we've seen through the whole book, and we will, about God's providential overruling in the lives of his people. We see a New Testament statement very much like that, Romans 8:28, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And always it comes up in our mind, well, what is the good that God will see to it? And if you're going to ask Naomi, what is the good that God will provide? She might say, well, the good is that my daughter-in-law Ruth gets married. And if you were to ask Ruth, what is the good that God will provide? She would say, the good is that my mother-in-law's family gets, gets restored. But in either case, she puts her hands in the God of Israel. And there could be a lot of various goods, you know, the, when, when God is fulfilling the good in our life. But surely the ultimate good that God provides for us is that he's in the process of making us like his son, Jesus. That's the ultimate good, the transformation which is taking place in our lives. That we will experience the destiny that each one of us was created to have. That we would love God. That we would... Um, I lost my train of thought. That we, would, that we would know God, that we would love God, that we would enjoy him forever. That is our ultimate destiny. That is what the best good is that God calls us to and that, and that uh, God will use. Again, the, the interesting thing about what we've seen so far is that God will perform the good for us even if he's doing so through other people's sinfulness. Isn't that a curious thing? I mean, it was wrong for Elimelech to leave Judah. It was wrong for his sons to marry outside of the faith. It was wrong for Naomi to try to manipulate the circumstances in her advantage. But God uses those wrongs ultimately for the good that he intends. Isn't that a curious thing? And God's using this situation. I mean, otherwise, if Elimelech had not left Judah and gone to Moab, they would have never met Ruth. And if Elimelech and Malon had not died and left them destitute, they would have never come back to Bethlehem. And it's there, there's this process of them going outside of the faith, marrying outside of the faith, their sin, which ultimately brings Ruth into the picture, and ultimately, we'll let's jump into the end of the book here, but ultimately, Ruth and Boaz are in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are the progenitors of Jesus. And that would have not happened if God hadn't intervened. Now, I've mentioned, I mentioned this last week, you know, that a lot of people love the book of Ruth because it's, it's dearly loved as the, the romance story of the Bible. The, the book of Ruth is really not a romance story, at least like we mean it in the modern times. It's not a story of boy meets girl, they're attracted to one another. They make kissy face. They get married. 
And there's this romantic haze that, you know, life goes on. That, that's a romance story. You know what? That's not this story. This is not a story like that at all. What attracts Boaz to Ruth and Ruth to Boaz has nothing to do with what they have in common or their appearance or wealth or anything else. What attracts them to one another is godly character. That they were the kind of people that, they, that the other one wanted to, 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 to bond their lives to. Theirs is a... Their romance is a, is a character love story, you know, not, a, not a, a matchmaker's love story. Naomi schemes at being a matchmaker, and it's, that's not what worked out here. You know, God was the matchmaker, and he didn't need Naomi's help. You know, professional matchmakers and online dating apps like uh, Christian Mingle, is that still... Existing Christian mingle. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, with, if you live in a small pond and you need to fish in a much bigger body of water, that's a good way to meet people. It's a good way to find people that are that are uh, similar to you in in a lot of ways. But you can't orchestrate. You can't scheme. You can't manipulate out of an introduction to someone to be happy and to serve God. And you can't know through the matchmaking service whether that person is a person of, of character, whether they'll be blessed by God. Because in this, you need heaven to give you a helping hand. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word to us and that uh, every word which you have recorded for us is instructive and it tells us about you and your love for us. And as Paul has said, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching. And I pray that you will teach us what we need to know from the exposition of the book of Ruth. I pray that you will help us to mature and to trust you and to know you better and consequently to love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.